a listener production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. On Her Game is a space where I get to share the stories of our incredible female sporting stars to try and learn more about the person behind the athlete. I'm excited to partner with Puma to uncover how their female sporting icons have reached the top of their fields, the challenges they've faced along the way, the boundaries they've had to push through, the glass ceilings they've had to smash, as well as the hopes, dreams and fearless attitudes that have shaped the women they are today. Together, we'll make sure women are seen, heard and treated as equals, both in sport and in life. In this episode, I speak with AFLW star Sabrina Frederick. I've long admired everything about Sabrina. What she's achieved on the field as the first marquee player of the AFLW, a star of the women's game and two-time All-Australian, but even more so what she's achieved off the field, the way she uses her profile and platform to inspire and call for social, cultural and gendered change. Sabrina didn't grow up seeing herself reflected in pop culture or in the media and is determined to be that person to the next generation. She's experienced discrimination, casual racism and has fought her way to the top in the male-dominated world of Australian rules football. Her incredible mental and physical toughness was all laid out for the whole country to see when she competed in the television series SAS Australia. Her strength, resilience and attitude impressed even the hardest of SAS soldiers and she won the respect and admiration of the nation as well. And as a kid, well, Sabrina was full of the same high energy she brings to her sport every day. I was probably a bit manic. Like I was a, a reckless <laughs> child. Um, I was running and crawling from a very young age and causing my mum um, a lot of <laughs> headaches. And um, yeah, even though I looked cute, I definitely wasn't. I was an absolute terror. And <laughs> one of three, um, middle child and probably still have that middle child syndrome, mm-hmm. always hands on everything, um, playing sports and getting dirty and yeah, I was a bit of a problem child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you grew up in, in England and left there when you were seven. Mm. When your mum said to you, we're going to Australia when you were seven years old, what did you imagine? Um, honestly, the only sort of reference to Australia at that point that I had was Kangaroo Jack and Crocodile Dundee. So you can imagine what I was what I was thinking about when we, we got told we were moving. Um, but it was sort of an interesting one. Like mum told us that we were we were going on an extended holiday basically. So if we enjoyed it, we would stay. Um, but if not, we would sort of come home. But it's kind of funny because I think me and my siblings are sort of waiting to go home still. <laughs> Would you ever go home? Do you feel attached to England in any way? Um, yeah, like a lot of my family are there. My mum actually has moved back. So she took, she brought us in and she's moved back there. Um, <laughs> and my dad lives there too. A lot of my family is still there. So um, obviously right now with the pandemic is a lot going on. But um, yeah, in the future, I would definitely live there for a little bit of time, but not permanently. I love Australia. I would definitely want to bring my kids up here. I feel like Australia loves you as well. We're not prepared to leave <laughs> <England> at all <laughs> as well. But you grew up in Punjara in Western Australia. How different was that than England life? Um, and when you reflect on that and set the scene for us, what mm. what, what is Punjara? Yeah. What is it like? Uh, I think it was probably a little bit of a 180 um, in comparison. Um, in England, I grew up in, in Brighton, which was a seaside town and it was, I guess, really, really accepting. Um, it had a huge, huge gay community there. So very, very accepting place. The schools were wearing w- winter uniforms and it was gated. Um, you couldn't really walk in. There was probably one gate in and out of the whole place. To moving to Pinjara, which was, a, I would say, a country town. It isn't a country town, but it, it in my eyes, it was a country town an hour out from Perth random people could walk through the school gates, you know, um, you're wearing t-shirt and shorts to school, very dry, dry weather, very hot and just spread out like everything. You'd need a car. You wouldn't be able to 
get by without a car and it was just so, so different. I used to be able to walk to school with my my siblings and then having to to drive to school and it was just a different setting and a complete 180 and I think at the time it was exciting in some some ways and I was obsessed with sports so the weather brought on a lot of sport for me which was great but I think it was also a massive, massive change. What was it like then being a woman of colour or a girl of colour but not Indigenous Mm. in a rural Western Australian backdrop? Yeah, it was difficult. <laughs> it was difficult because you didn't really have anywhere to fit in. And at the time, when you're a kid, all you want to do is fit in. Now as an adult, I don't want to fit in. But as a kid, that's all you want, especially when you're new to a school. You don't want to stand out. And I think knowing you didn't really have a place, like you didn't belong with the Indigenous kids, but you also didn't belong with the other kids and you sort of felt like you were out of place and um, at times that was quite hard. And speaking to my siblings about it as an adult now, doing things that you didn't really think about then but you can reflect on in terms of trying to suppress your your accent, it's, you know, just trying really hard to, to fit in with everyone. And um, I was probably lucky in the sense that the kids that were Indigenous in my year group were really accepting of me and really could identify I wasn't, I guess, comfortable. Um, and and I, I probably grew a lot closer to those kids than the others. Um, sport's always a bit of a barrier breaker, isn't it? Yeah. It's a huge one. And for me, I loved sports. So <laughs> it definitely, <laughs> definitely helped. Um, and I, I think that... Because it was a difficult move, I sort of threw myself into that more so and I sort of talk about the story of how I get into footy and, and that was a huge part of it was I had no friends and I didn't know what to do. The only thing I did know how to do was play sport and watching the kids play footy at lunchtime and, you know, recess and <clears throat> not knowing what the sport was but just thinking I can just yeah. give it a go and hope for the best <laughs> and that's sort of what happened. It's a very different looking footy to the one you would have known yeah. growing up in England. Oh, absolutely. I Yeah, I, I grew up with a soccer ball at my feet. My dad used to play soccer. So from the moment that I could run, I was playing soccer. And to come to, into a space where f- football was the main sport, I had no idea it existed. Um, I thought it was rugby to start with. And uh, <laughs> yeah, you would. Yeah, exactly. And, and picked it up. Um, pretty quickly, luckily for me, uh, I yeah loved it. I loved the sport right from the beginning. Did you have any sporting role models looking up if you were so active and loved your sport? Mm. Who did you look up to? Yeah, I had. I'd probably say I'd have had two. Um, one would be um, an English Premier League soccer player called Thierry Henry, and he was a huge, huge one for me because I loved soccer growing up and just the passion he had for the game. He was a scorer, and I just, I loved. I loved watching him. I loved um, how he entertained the the crowds. He always made sure that when he was out there, he was giving it 110%. It's actually why I chose the number 14 to start with because of him. And the second one would be Serena Williams based on the fact that what she's done for women's sport in general is amazing. And for people like her, it's changing the way people see the game and uh, I guess, too, as a young kid, you just want someone that su- looks like you mm. um, doing those things <laughs> so you feel like you can go and accomplish those things. And she was definitely that for me. Um, she's my all-time favourite athlete mm. with Sabrina Frederick. I'm very <laughs> second, I have to say, but I'm back here with that. Um, you played with the boys mm. growing up. What's your experience like that? How do you reflect on on that time? I think as a kid you're so naive to some things and like I said before you just want to fit in so you sort of suppress some things to get by and um, I think when I was playing with the boys I learned a lot in the fact of the mental strength component of it to just sort of keep my head down and do the work and sort of I guess try and push myself through based on merit um, I was always trying to prove myself um, and in that way probably motivated me to work harder 
than them and get me to where I am now. Looking back now, certain things that happened and treatment probably wasn't the best. Um, you know, simple things like being a part of a club where they've never had girls before. So you go into a change room and there's no doors on, there's no doors on the toilets. You know, <laughs> something simple as that is you, you, as a kid, you just go, okay, this is a bit strange, but you just deal with it. You just deal with it. You know, what, what, I'm not going to be the first person to complain about it because then it brings the focus back on me. So there's probably just little things like that that popped up along the way playing with the boys. You had to give up when you were 13 or you had the choice, give it up or play with the women. Mm. You didn't pursue another sport. You wanted to stay with football though. And that meant as a 13-year-old playing with the women, what was that like? Oh, it was insane. I think, again, looking back, I've always been the type of kid to just do what I want to do. Just I've, I've never really looked at it like, you know, I have to give up playing. It was sort of, you know, oh, this this isn't great, but I have a solution in front of me. Um, yeah, I'm playing with grown women, but this will be fun. And, you know, <laughs> it's it's crazy to look back now and think the girls I was playing with at that age are my age now. That's crazy to think. <laughs> Those were the, the type of age people I was playing with and against. And I think I probably am thankful that my mum actually <laughs> let me go and play with these women because it's quite daunting for someone like myself. I was tall, but I was really, really scrawny and probably could have injured myself pretty easily. So I was probably lucky that mum gave me the opportunity to go and um, take that chance. But I think the huge part of that was going from a country where women can play sports, all sports, to, to Australia where their main sport, females didn't play at the highest level. I think that was probably the biggest shock for me. Where did you think saying that if there were no role models, no females playing at the top level, where did you think your football journey was going to lead you? I didn't think it was going to lead me anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually still playing soccer throughout all that time. I'd played soccer all the way through school and sort of that was probably on the back of my mind of where I wanted to end up because there was a future there. I never thought that there was something in AFL because there wasn't. <laughs> but I played because I really, really enjoyed it. I love, I loved the game. I still love the game. So it was just pure joy that I was playing. Saying that, when you received the phone call, when you first found out that there was going to be a professional AFL league for women, what was your reaction? I was so excited and I was more, I was probably the most excited because of the timing, because during that time I actually was planning on going to the States on a scholarship to play soccer. So really, yeah. So the timing in the US college yeah, system. Yeah. So I was, I was wow. really thankful that it came at that time because it happened just when I was sort of needing to make my decision. And yeah, I took, I guess, the gamble um, on this idea. It was sort of at that point was just whispers that it was going to happen. It wasn't the official Gillen coming out and actually saying it. Um, and then, yeah, it ended up being a real thing. So, Wow, so you gave up on that US college yeah. dream, which could have led to <laughs> knows? Matilda's, you I don't know, know, W League. I don't know, but yeah, I mean... Um, yeah, so I played, I got a scholarship at high school to play soccer and I played all the way through school. And then, yeah, I was, um, on the scouting list to go to a college at the time. And I was, there was a couple of colleges I was looking at, um, one, one of being New York and yeah, it was actually at that point that I sort of let go on that and decided to stay and play footy. And never look back. Yeah. I love soccer, don't get me wrong, but I... It's it's always been football for me and I think how I know that is I've been playing soccer since I can remember and it was sort of thrown upon me whereas I chose AFL. No one in my family had ever played and I genuinely really enjoy the game and that's why I do it. So for me it was sort of a no-brainer in that, in that aspect. 
Well, then the AFLW was announced and in that first year, there was so much rapid attention Mm. and this rapid rise of the league, which was so phenomenal but so exciting. You were a marquee player in that um, what the first inaugural, like, I mean, you're a trivia question, really, aren't you? <laughs> At Pub Trivia from now on, who were the marquee players <laughs> for Brisbane Lions, who was a marquee player in the AFLW, and it was you. Um, but were you ready for that rapid attention that would be in that spotlight that would be on you and also your personal life? Mm. I probably wouldn't say I was ready for the attention, um, but... I mean, I was 19. I just turned 19 when I when I moved to Brisbane. Um, and as much as I thought I was growing up, I was very, very young and made a lot of mistakes and was learning along the way and probably took a lot of things to heart. With being in the public eye comes criticism and opinion and I probably wasn't ready for that. I'm so used to having criticism or feedback from people that are in my circle um, rather than people I've never even met. So that was a massive, massive leap, um, not to mention moving across the country um, to somewhere I'd never been before to go and play footy. Without that support, familiar support network as well. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a huge one. And oh, I learned so much in that, though. I think that every decision I've ever made in my life has been a deep end moment. Like I... I love putting myself in the deep end to see if I sink or, you know, swim. I, I, it's how I learn best because I feel like when you're in an uncomfortable situation, you're in that fight or flight moment and you have to survive. And I feel like I learn a lot about myself in those moments. And um, for me, that was a huge one. You played in the two grand finals, mm. the first two grand finals, but unable to to get that trophy. How did that affect you? How did you look at those? Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, in the end of the day, it's a game. So you have to have the perspective of life in that. It's not, you know, it's not life or death in that situation, but you put so much effort into getting to a grand final. And some people have never made a grand final, um, let alone win one. And I think for that first one, it, it, we really wanted to make it because it was the first one ever, you know, so getting there in itself was, an achieve, achievement and amazing um, and to only <laughs> only lose by six points is so gut-wrenching and then to try and get back there the following year and then lose by six points again. Um, I think after that second one, it really hit home for me. I think, to be honest, I went into a real lull after that just because it's almost, I think it's almost because it was sort of like two years at the, in that moment, it sort of felt like a bit of a waste. And I know some people might think that's a bit dramatic and it probably was at the time. <laughs> but, we, you know, we play the game because we love it, but we want to win. We're, we're all co- competitors. You know, we all want to ultimately lift that Premiership Cup. So to be able to be one kick away two years in a row, yeah, it was really, really hard. You said and you alluded to it that you lost the love of the game there for a while and you moved to Richmond. You described your move as the first decision I made for my future that's not based on what other people think. Mm. What do you mean like that? Because, Sabrina, you strike everyone as this really strong, assertive woman, but did you not feel somewhat in, in control of your decisions up until then? Yeah, up until that point... I think you always want to think you're not doing things for other people, but I think getting thrown into that system and having all that attention, I think that you sort of get used to people chirping and having their two cents and you want everyone to be happy. You want all those people to love you and you want all those people to support you and then you realise that will never happen. (laughs) That will never happen and you're the person that's going to live with the consequence. And now I live every single day. At that at that point, I made a ma- massive change and I sort of said to myself, I make every decision for the elderly person that's going to live in that rocking chair. And what I say by that is, in the end of the day, I am going to be the only person that deals with how I lived my life at the end of it. <laughs> no one else is going to be there. 
you know, and I think that with all these people having their say, they don't know the context behind a lot of those things. Um, and I can't be making decisions based on them and their opinions. So at that point I left Brisbane and a lot of people had something to say about it, but it was the best decision I could have made. I made it for my future. I made it for my family, my partners from Melbourne, and that's where we want to raise our kids. So that was a huge choice and I don't change, I wouldn't change it for the world. How did you find your love of the game again? I think that decision in itself was a huge part of that because for me, if I'm happy in all areas of life, then I'm going to be happy on the ground. I think that with everything going on, when I was in Brisbane, although I was part of a great team and a great culture and there was a lot going right, I wasn't where I wanted to be. And I think that affected the footy in some respect. And it almost felt like a job, which it is a job. But I think when it comes to entertainment and you're in that realm of work, it shouldn't feel like a job every single day. And it started to feel that way. So when I made the move to Melbourne, it was sort of a fresh start. Now five years into the AFLW, is it where you imagined it would be now when you first started? Has it progressed at the rate that you expected when it first started in that first year of the AFLW? Mm. I would say from when it started, no, I had no idea. I had no idea it was going to grow this fast. Um, I've always known how talented these women are, so I knew that the product would be great, but I didn't know it, the whole competition would grow to what it is now. I don't even know what I thought it was going to be, but it's strange because even though I thought that, I think after the second year, I realised how much potential this game has and I almost feel like we're behind. And the reason why I say that is because the game, the women's game on paper and the product is amazing. I just wish that I guess the resourcing and the competition investment was sort of moving at the rate that the product is moving at. How does that change? <laughs> Probably changes from the top. Not that I make those decisions and it's a very hard job. I understand all those things and it's a lot more than just let's just make it full time. It's not, it's not that simple, but I think it's the same as any business. You, if you want something to grow, you've got to invest in it. Um, you've got to put the resourcing and you've got to put the finances in it. So I think that at some point, if you want the product to continue to grow, you've got to put something into it. So, yeah, I wonder where that will <laughs> end up. But I saw some incredible stats about this year's AFLW and just how much it's, it's, it's grown in the, its viewership, its engagement. Mm. Um, and, you know, the first year that it was ticketed and, and how many games, I think, and numerous games which were sold out. Mm. There's proof in that pudding, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that people sort of go on about how the women's game, we're not producing enough revenue and things like that. But for me and for any person that's had any sort of business experience would know that revenue isn't just finances. It's the amount of girls that are playing football now because of AFLW would be ridiculous. The amount of money that those girls and families are putting into their community clubs and rep teams and things like that would be huge. The amount of people that are attending the games now paying to attend the games, which we've had a few sold out games this year, not to mention the amount of people that are watching at home, all those things contribute to that. And I think that sometimes the dollar figure gets sort of rushed under the carpet with all of those things. In order for the AFLW to see that continued growth and success, mm. if I could give you the controls for a day, <laughs> what Only would you want to day. see? <laughs> well, you've got a day. You've got to work really hard. You've got a day to make change. What are the changes that you would make in that day? You've got complete control and no barriers whatsoever. What would you do and what would you want to see? 
I think I'd probably just give the females the opportunity and not just the players, the staff, all the people involved that are working part-time to make this full-time product happen. I would probably just give them the opportunity to to do that, actually work the hours that need to be sustainable. And I know that probably wouldn't do too much in a day, but I'd love to know how much work could be done in that day. Yeah. But I mean, you get the controls for a day, but you make long-term changes. <laughs> yeah, so long-term plans. Would, <laughs> long-term <laughs> plans. Is that what AFLW needs to see that continued growth and that's what you would want to see? I think it definitely has to move in that direction. You know, there's there's players that are giving up career opportunities because they want to play at the highest level right now, and it's just not it's just not sustainable. You can't you can't expect us to producing the same level and quality game that the men are playing at when they're contributing most of their time towards it, and then we're contributing half, if that, towards it, um, but the expectation's the same. The one thing I've really always admired about you is that you speak without fear. You speak with this strong purpose um, and with such confidence. Were you always so confident in your own voice? And how did that change? Where did that come from? Mm. I think so. <laughs> I think I've always had that. It's probably gotten me in trouble at some point. <laughs> um, and it probably stems from my parents. Both of them are very strong, strong-willed, very outspoken, the both of them. I think just, I think I just grew up sort of speaking for what's right. Um, and I'm always not going to get it right. And like I said, I'm growing, I'm evolving, I'm not perfect. But for me... If I don't say it, then I'm going to have to live with that, you know, knowing that I didn't speak up and, yeah, you can be afraid of all the things that happened afterwards. But for me, it's just, it's the only way to live life. You've only got one. So, so <laughs> I just think that you can't be thinking about what other people have to think about it. You just have to say what you mean. And that's, I, I don't know how to explain the fearless part. I think I just speak my mind and, and sort of stick to my guns and say what I believe in. Mm. Has that confidence and that assurity of the power of your voice, has that grown since you're in the AFLW, since you have grown and had this platform mm. in which you, you can bring different opinions and issues to a public forum? Yeah, definitely. It's It has because I know my responsibility and I not everyone does, but I personally take on role model. I take that to heart. All I wanted when I was a kid was someone I could aspire to be and look up to. And I know that there are so many kids looking to me now and adults, and I know how big that responsibility is. And it's easy to say, I'm just here to play football. But if I want change in the world, I've got to do what I can do to make that change. Um, and it might be a small part of it, but I know my responsibility and um, I will continue to do so. You talked a little bit about, you know, coming over here from England and, and feeling different. In terms of racism, mm. how have you experienced racism in Australia? <laughs> um, <laughs> how I've dealt with it, I've spoken about more recently, probably just because I probably suppressed a lot of it because you don't want to be able to think about those things. But I think more so on the casual side, I know a lot of people, they're not intentionally trying to be rude or mean, but I think it's just probably lack of education around a lot of things. I think going back to what I said about my accent and, and wanting to change that, that, that probably came from the fact that a lot of kids didn't really understand that because I was black, I could be English. And that that stems from something right from the beginning um, that trickles down to me wanting to not sound the way I sounded, not wanting the hair that I have. Now I wear my hair out and I'm, I'm proud of it, but all I wanted was straight hair as a kid because I didn't want to have an afro. Just, <laughs> there's so many, unfortunately, 
And I always say it this way is it's death by a thousand cuts. And what I mean by that is the way that I've experienced racism has never been this massive, massive thing where it's point blank, but it's been all these little things that have added up and changed how I go about life and how I see certain people that has resulted in me being the way I am now and seeing things the way I am now. And it's not been this huge incident, but it doesn't hurt any less. Mm. Lily, your partner, Mm. I was listening to a podcast with her and she was talking about being in the stands at games and hearing derogatory and discriminatory things and abuse thrown at you. Mm. How often does that happen? Do you hear it from the ground? But when you learn about it from your partner, Lily, how much does that sting? Personally, when I'm on the ground, I can't hear a thing, <laughs> which is so funny that people think that we can hear them out there when we really can't. <laughs> um, so when I'm out there, I don't, I don't hear any of that stuff. But to know that she has to sit there and listen to that is what oh, breaks my heart. I think it's not them saying that that hurts because I'm conditioned. Like I have been dealing with that my whole life. So it doesn't actually phase me, which is not great. But the fact that someone I care about has to sit there and listen to that is really, really hard um, because she'll defend me no matter what (laughs) and she'll definitely try and fight back. Um, But it's just, it's something, it's just, it's so silly and it's not just the racism things, it's sexism too. I mean, I remember telling me after a game, this guy was yelling out, oh, you kick like a girl. And she <laughs> turned around <laughs> and said, oh, you think so? We're at an AFLW game. <laughs> like, <laughs> just oh my God. silly people, silly, uneducated people. And to be honest, it gets to a point where you just, you really feel sorry for them. You're not even angry or hurt. You just genuinely feel sorry for them. Mm. You talk about... um about that. I've heard you before talk about you go to the shops and you make sure that you get your receipts mm. every time. Mm. Do you still feel as though you have to do that? Yeah, I do. And I I only, I actually, before doing that talk and talking about that, I'd only ever told my family that I do that because it's not, it's not something you want to talk about. It's not something that probably anyone would even notice. Um, but... It's not great that you feel like you're constantly on edge and constantly being watched and feel like because of history you've been framed out to be someone you're not. And, yeah, I still do that. I still do it now. I still get anxious if I leave a store without a receipt because I just never want to be that person who, you know, gets framed or locked up and, unfortunately... Everywhere in the world, there are people that get locked up for something they didn't do um, and sometimes even resulting in losing their life. So as much as some people wouldn't, would laugh at that, that I keep my receipts, I, I have my own back <laughs> and it genuinely is just a safety thing, like I, a safety blanket. I've always done it. I feel like it's powerful and important to say because... If you don't live that, I don't live that, but it is important for me to know that that's what other people are living and that's what you're living. It's important for everyone to understand that that's, that's what's happening and that's how you feel. I think that when it comes to racism too, it's all about experience. So in when things had happened in the last year and things broke out because of what happened in the United States with George Floyd, I felt a responsibility to speak my truth and my story because people cannot knock what you have lived, what you go through. I can sit here all day and just talk about your generic racism that people do all the time, but you can't knock what has happened to me and what I live every single day. So I felt a responsibility to say those things and share bits of 
bits and pieces of my story, even though if it was really emotional, because it was, I didn't want to have that conversation. (laughs) I didn't want to have to bring that all back up and have to think back to when I was younger and how that made me feel. But I felt like I had to share it so people around me could understand for a moment what it might be like to be in someone of colour's shoes. 100%. You talked about your hair mm. and I read a post about, about you growing up with your hair and hating it and you alluded <laughs> to that. People, people touching it all the time. Mm. Can you talk to that mm. a little bit about how, how frustrating that was? Yeah, I, I'd probably say up until the last year, I never really, like, I've got it out now, but I never, I would never would have it out. I'd probably have it out for about a week. And then I would put it into braids or something else. I would never have it out for this long because I feel like it's, as a kid anyway, having an Afro wasn't seen as, I guess, beautiful. It wasn't seen as that, you know, the the people that on the front covers, they all have straight hair or, you know, whatever it may be. And it just made you feel like you were that odd one out and the weird kid <laughs> and when you did have it out and you felt like maybe a little bit confident about having it out, you then have every single person being like, oh, can I touch it? Can I? And patting you like you're an animal. (laughs) So when you finally feel like you're confident, then there's people touching you all the time. And it's, it's so strange. I think I understand it from the perspective of people are interested and they're intrigued because they don't have it. But how would you like it if I came up to you and said, oh, straight hair, that's amazing. Can I just, and just pat you? When you put it in reverse, people are like, yeah, okay, that's yeah, strange. That's yeah. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I'll never get over it. People will still to this day will do it and it's you never want to make people feel bad either because I know most of the time the intention is pure. It's never a like, they never would want to make me feel like that. So I try and... I try my best to not get annoyed about it, but I think the more and more I talk about it, hopefully people are listening to this and don't go and touch my hair. I get it. (laughs) If there are girls out there that are looking at Instagram, that are looking at social media and they're not seeing themselves like, you know, you couldn't see yourself on TV or Mm. on front covers of magazines, what would be your message to those little girls? My message would be... It's okay to be different. Embrace that. Lean into that because that is how you're going to make it in in your life. That is how you're going to dictate where your life goes, I think. All I ever wanted as a kid was to fit in and now I couldn't be further from that. I I never want to be anyone else. I just want to be me. I just want to do what I want to do and look the way I want to look. And I think there's that pressure as as a kid to fit in so much. But it's okay to be different. That's what I would say. It's okay to be different. We've inspired so many girls already, Sabrina, and your story's not done yet. But there's a few people that you inspire a lot. You talked about it before, Amelia, Mm. your your sister, and she sent us this voice memo we wanted to let you. (laughs) Hey, sis. I remember being asked years ago who I look up to the most. I said you, and you must have been about 15 at the time. Once you put your mind to something, you'll put in the work to get to where you want to be. Some of my funniest early memories of you are you getting into everything and wrecking havoc. You needed constant supervision and were affectionately known as Sabrina the Destroyer. Today, I'm so proud that you're empowering children and adults and you're representing women in such an incredible way. In particular, it means a lot to me that young girls who look like us can have that representation at a high level of sport. It's hard to become something that you cannot see. I admire how you're not afraid to show the world who you are and who you love. That is so powerful. I'm so proud to call you my little sister. Hashtag sister act. (laughs) Oh, that was a nice surprise. <laughs> I'm shocked. Sorry, I've been crying. Oh. <laughs> it makes you emotional. Yeah, it does. Why does that? Because I love my siblings so much, honestly. Mm. And, 
I guess that people don't understand. I think a lot of people think they know me, but they don't know me and how I've lived my life. And these guys have actually <laughs> been there with me through a lot. And yeah. I don't know, I just I get emotional because my sister, she's always going to be my big sister. So hearing <laughs> that from her, all I've ever wanted to do is make her proud as well. So sorry for getting emotional. You did that. So <laughs> she sent it to me and I was in tears as well. My producer was in tears when she heard it as well. So I can't imagine what that's like for you right now. But it must be terrible, incredibly emotional. But yeah, it's important family and it's evident there from your message from Amelia as well. Oh, that was really nice. Thank you for that. (laughs) As part of this Puma series, we want you to be fearless about your future. If you could be fearless about the future that you want, Mm. it's up to you. Mm. Your fearless future would look like what? I'd probably say my fearless future would look like me playing AFL professionally. If I could have full reins of where I'm going, that's what I'd want to do. Get a chance to compete at the highest level and be acknowledged and have equal rights. How do we get equal rights in sport? How do we get to that equality? What needs to happen? I think in terms of getting to that, it would be investment in the competition, real investment, so then these people can financially afford to put all those hours in um, and make it the best product just like the men's competition. How do you wish to see cultural change in sport if we could give you a magic wand? I'd probably just say equal rights across the board again. Just sexism and racism, it needs to be stamped out. You can't have that. Just judge people based on their skills. You can say to me, I don't kick well, that's fine. That is completely fine. Judging me based on other things is not. So I think that if I could wave my magic wand, it would be stamping out those things in the game. Can you talk a little bit now about brand support and media support? Where are we at that, in your opinion? Does that need to change? Mm. I think that, I think in terms of where we're at now, it's been amazing, but I think where we need to take it next is investment from big corporations and the TV rights and and the brands. If you really believe in equality, and this is probably a preaching (laughs) preaching thing, but if your corporation believes in equality, you can't not get behind AFLW. If you believe that women should have the same experience and rights as males, then you've got to invest you've got to put your money where your mouth is. It's been amazing so far, but we've just got to take it one step further. Do you believe you've now done enough in these last five years of the AFLW to prove that you're a product that you can invest in, that prove that has a future and a proof that it works? You guys work. You are a product that works. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've we've definitely... We've had our five-year trial and I think it's time for us to, to now get the, the full contract for sure. I want to talk about SAS Australia because you were an absolute weapon in the show. <sighs> did you do any specific training in the lead up to that? Because did you have any idea about that it would be as intense and as tough as what it was? It's funny because when the, the show approached me, Originally, I was in season. So when they originally were thinking about um, recording, I couldn't do it. So they sort of passed on me, which I understand. But then COVID happened and they shut production down. Um, And when it came up again, they said to me, look, do you want to be involved? We we can't have you. We've already got the cast, but do you want to be a train on just in case someone sort of gets injured or someone gets COVID or something like that? I said, why not? Like what an opportunity just to have something motivating me. I was already preparing for a season. So for me, it was sort of why not just train for it? Um, And to be honest, the training wasn't anything major adjustment to what I already do. I, I would probably say the only thing I added was running with weight because we ran with a lot of weight on the show. But I actually 
And a lot of people don't know this. I don't really like to talk about it because I don't want people to be like, oh, you know, but I did two weeks quarantine before the show because I was coming from Victoria and there was probably four of us that did it. Um, but I actually didn't know I was going on the show until the day before, day one of oh. <laughs> So I, up until that point, I still didn't know if I was going to go on the show. Um, wow. I sort of just was waiting to see if anyone got sick or whatever and the producer actually said to me, um, they were impressed with how my preparation was um, and they wanted to just add me in as an extra. So wow. I guess my training wasn't, Yay. it was it was intense, but it wasn't, I don't think it was as vigorous as everyone else's because they knew they were going to be, <laughs> they were going to yeah, be Yeah, and you were stuck in quarantine yeah, too. So it was, I just tried to keep fit, I suppose. And I think, to be honest, that course is way more mental than it is physical. Like, of course, you have to be phys- physically fit because it's the, the course is insane. Um, but I think it's definitely more mental than it is physical. Um, and it was the toughest thing I've ever done by, by a mile. It's honestly, for those who think it is a show that you yell cut and you get teen biscuits, that is not what it is. We got no break. We didn't see any producers, nothing. There was camera crew and those cameras around, but it was a full-on course, 12-hour days, the coldest of cold. And, yeah, honestly, the hardest thing I've ever done, but the best Mm. thing at the same time. (laughs) You're an absolute star of the show. Amazing. Um, I don't think there's anyone who didn't want to, who watched it, that didn't have so much immense respect for you and we're cheering you on. Um, first episode, though, it was a public blow up at the after that mm. with the the fight with the honey badger, Nick um, Nick Cummins. Um, you chose to fight him. That was the idea of it. You got you chose who you wanted to fight, mm. and that's a measure of the person that you are. Mm. That you didn't choose the easy one. You chose the hardest, biggest. <laughs> person in that whole competition. (laughs) Why did you choose him? And did you know that was actually what they were looking for? I didn't know that that's what they were, like, I didn't know that they were hoping I was going to pick Badger because I don't, I don't think they were expecting that. (laughs) I do not think that. I think that I went on that show to push myself. I said to myself, I'm going, if I'm going to do this, I'm really going to commit to it. So when I was standing there and they said, pick someone, and I was looking at everyone, I thought, all I'm going to do is just pick the biggest challenge. The worst thing that could happen is I get punched in the face. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that was the worst that was going to happen. Um, so yeah, I, and it wasn't like a, I'm picking Nick. It was genuinely just, I'm picking the biggest challenge here. And it just so happened to be Nick. And it just so happened that he was a male. If the if I felt like the biggest competition there was a female, I would have picked a female. It wasn't like a, a male-female thing at all. And there was a huge blow-up. Like, at the time, I didn't think anything of it. Um, and I, I later saw that the DS, they were really impressed. But I didn't see any of that. I didn't know how they felt about it. And then a few months later when it went to air, everyone went nuts about it. And it's funny because if you asked anyone that is close to me, they would have guessed it straight away. And I think now that you've spoken to me, I think it probably would have made more sense now that you've had a bit of insight into who I am. But for someone who has no idea, I could understand why that would have been like crazy. What was it like watching it back on reflection and hearing the DS comments about you? Because they were so impressed all the way through the things that they were saying. She's perfect. She's the person that you want on a team. Mm. She's ideal for this. She's in the right headspace. She's a machine. Like it was giving me warm and fuzzies hearing them talk about you like that. Mm. What was it like for you to, because you wouldn't have seen or heard any of that no. to watch that on reflection? Yeah, it was an experience. I, during the course, they don't let you know how you're going at all. And the funny thing is every night that people were going, I thought I was going. And I, every person I speak to, they felt the same because you, they made you feel like that. They made you feel like you're on edge all the time. And I think that's obviously the concept of it. So when I finished and I heard like, 
they actually thought that from the beginning and they thought that the whole way through is insane <laughs> to me because that did not feel like that in there. <laughs> and any mistake that I made, it gets pulled up tenfold. Um, yeah, so I didn't get, it wasn't any special treatment or anything like that. It was an absolute surprise and an amazing surprise because since leaving the show, I've had such a great relationship with those guys and they're, they're amazing, amazing human beings. And it's funny now, like looking back, because I thought they hated me when I was in there. <laughs> wow. Did you feel seen by them? Because they see through people. Did you feel seen for them, to them, without any of the, I mean, any of the barriers that you've had to push through in your whole journey? Like, they, they didn't talk about you being a woman of colour. They never talked about you being a woman. Nothing like that. They saw you as a soldier. Yeah. I think that's why I said yes to doing it is because in the military, they do not care where you come from, what you look like. They do not care. They just want conformity and they judge you based on merit and merit only. So for me, it was the perfect place to be because I just wanted to show what I've got and show who I am and to be able to be seen like that and get those comments said about me when they would have come across so many different people and for them to just respect me as a human wanting to grow as a person and challenge themselves as a person, that was huge. Toughest moment in there? <laughs> so many. <laughs> um, <laughs> toughest moment. The toughest moment for me would have been when I injured my back. I had a a task where we were jumping <laughs> off a crane in a quarry <laughs> backwards and um, my teammate at the time was in charge of bracing my fall and it was quite abrupt that m the rope pulled me and my back hyperextended and um, I was in a lot, a lot of pain after that and probably didn't show how bad it was. Um, on the show, but I was contemplating of giving my number in that next day. I didn't know if I could, could go on. And the next day I was pulling a sledge, very heavy sledge through the snow. And that was honestly the toughest moment of my entire life was that day, trying to push past that pain. Um, yeah, it was insane. It was, it was hard, very, very tough. My final question that we ask every single guest on On Her Game, if you could go back and tell that 10-year-old Sabrina Frederick something, what would be your message to her? <sighs> Keep doing what you're doing, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Don't change anything. Don't listen to other people's opinion. Just be who you want to be. That's what I would say. Do not try and fit in. Just be who you are. You're amazing. You're a weapon. You've given so much to our game and to Australian sport. It's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like I haven't, I've got so many more questions. I more time. <laughs> thanks, Sam. Give me more time. <laughs> we can have a chat later on. You can yeah, come around for some dinner. <laughs> we can have Sounds a chat. Sounds great. I just want to say as well, you're a powerful voice and thank you for using your platform to create the change that you have been. It's It's been powerful. It's been inspiring. It's It's been educational. And it's been a game changer. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me on. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. This episode was created in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series, to stay up to date with their incredible female sporting icons, follow at PumaAU on Instagram. And remember, stay fearless. Listener.